knows. Technically a one-way street, but it's Berlin, so it's very much a one-way street in the daytime, and then at night the rules and regulations change. <laughs> Being happy in a world which has been set up for you not even to survive, let alone be happy in, is sometimes a really big form of protest. And when we have these rooms, the women just look at you and they're laughing. And I've been in so many rooms where I'm doing comedy and the women are laughing and men are looking at me with like anger in their face. Welcome to Decolonization in Action, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and I'm broadcasting from the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, Germany. Some people think decolonization is not a laughing matter. However, in today's episode, Kate Cheka and I discuss the ways that she challenges imperialism, sexism, and racism through her stand-up comedy. During our conversation, I was curious about her comedic journey and inspiration for bringing joy to her audience. We began the conversation discussing the Enlightenment, and then started talking about identity, feminism, and resistance. One question we tried to unpack was, how can we embrace happiness as a decolonial practice? I'm joined by Kate Cheka, who's a British Tanzanian scholar and comedian living in Berlin. Welcome. Thank you. You were recently awarded a degree for a Master's of Arts in Global Studies by the Institute for Asian and African Studies. Your thesis was entitled The Threat of European Enlightenment, Thinking in Postcolonial Spaces. Can you tell me what inspired you to write about this topic? The thing that inspired me, I was an interesting master's because you do your first semester in Berlin and then you move. Uh, second semester can be done in South Africa or Argentina. So I was in Buenos Aires for four months and then your third semester can be in India or Thailand and that's how I was in New Delhi. And it basically what inspired me was everyone else on my uh, program was more, more or less white and I was interested to watch how white people move around the world. They move around the world very differently to how I as a black woman move around the world and I found that very interesting to witness it. And something that struck me a lot about, especially when I was in India, was the self-assuredness with which they carried their own belief system, their own knowledge as the measure to judge everything against. And I remember very clearly, it was one class that stood out for me, which was, this. it was a very kind of um, the triggering to topic, which was about sort of rape and small communities in India. And the classroom discussion became dominated by two guys on our master's program who are both white German guys and the professor who's an Indian man. And I just, everyone else was silent and I just watched how this power dynamic played out on an issue which fundamentally is so far removed from their life. And they yet still felt they were entitled to have an opinion on it. Um, and I just don't know if I need more posturing opinions on stuff, something that they don't couldn't really understand and don't feel and yeah so that was what kind of inspired it was watching yeah white people in these spaces which are technically you know they're independent on a national level but you know I, whether I argue that the colonial is post which is why I put it in brackets in my thesis title which is like the post is in the brackets is kind of questionable with all these people that come in and sort of use their own knowledge to judge the society. So when you speak about posts within the brackets, uh, colonial spaces, 
are you mostly thinking in terms of intellectual spaces, so universities, academic yeah. institutions? Um, are there other spaces in which you find that people are able to distance themselves from colonial violence? I think in lots of spaces, I think you see it in formal institutions more in places like like you know academics, and I, I think you would also see it in yeah like government institutions as well. Um, and then certainly there's this kind of NGO culture, which I'm very, uh, I take issue with, uh, <laughs> let's say. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's the whole space. It's the ability to be, I never quite recognized the privilege of my passport until I lived abroad. And then I was like, wow, the ability to be able to move with relative ease around this country. And my God, is it so much more if you are than white in a country like India. Like you are treated so well and it's just interesting to witness. And I think I see it from both sides because on the one hand I am British and I am also half white, my mother is white. But on the other side, I if I cover my hair, especially in somewhere like India, people can't always gauge quite where I'm from and often they'll think I'm from India but another part of India because India is so big um, but yeah it was just watching these people basically <laughs> so beyond this perhaps hierarchy or maybe differences in ways in which people are moving through spaces and especially in in India your thesis looks at the question around memory and forgetting in fact, you begin with a quote by the voices of Arreo leaders, uh, Mateo Sobode, uh, Chicuano, and uh, Quino Acuero, which state, quote, Today we say that the white people forget the thing that they try to think and say. This is why they always put everything in writing, so they won't forget. Yeah. What role do you think memory and forgetting has in thinking about coloniality? Um, I think it's really, I think I just loved that quote because I just thought it was spot on and just very funny. And I was about to write, I don't know, 26,000 words or something. So I thought this was funny how I was being forced to put this into writing. We have this idea about countries that didn't have writing systems, perhaps, and so on as being less progressed or developed. Or I, these are words that I really am reticent. I just don't like using. But um, I think there's a really important point that oral histories had which was to move with every generation so yes you weren't remembering it you know exactly as it was at that time but history doesn't work like that anyway because you always bring present day interpretation to it anyway so oral histories were very good at adapting with each subsequent generation I think there is a tendency and we know this about our political systems in Europe and in the West more generally, that they don't adapt to the changing times because things are codified and it's much harder to change things that are codified. And I also think, I was talking actually at a recent conference with another uh, academic and we were talking about how language is not, we think that, like there were like certain societies in Africa, for instance, that they had the ability to write, they had the ability to uh, yeah, codify their language and they chose not to because the rulers at the time worked out that it was better for their way of ruling that people didn't codify the rules of how they were going to give gifts to the kings and whatever. And um, I mean, I shouldn't even gender it, kings, queens, all gendered rulers because gender functions differently 
pre-colonial times. In Europe, like the, for instance, the reason why Germany and subsequently English have the Roman alphabet is because this, they took it from the Mediterranean languages because these Northern European countries didn't actually get written language till a lot later than we think. And actually it was the, really the Mediterranean and Arabic that got a lot of written language first because they were traders and they were traders via sea and they had to codify that. So I think in terms of like archives and memory and things like that, using your memory rather than codifying it and writing it down, there was also the potential for the society to develop with each new generation in a kind of more organic way. In your thesis, you unpack the terms European and Western with respect to the ways that they get used mm. interchangeably. And you acknowledge that ideas encompassing Europe or the so-called West expand beyond their geographical boundaries and get employed by people who may not neatly fit into those categories of European, Western, mm. etc. Especially when thinking about those uh, who have perhaps been formerly colonized or descendants of slaves. Can you explain how you use these terms, particularly European, Western, and how you navigate through the complexities of coloniality? So I took quite a hard line in my thesis, and I think it was part of my own um, maybe feelings of annoyance what I was writing it. But I preference the term European, and partly that's being in Europe, it's being at a German university. But in the, this was the place where this Enlightenment thinking had come from, and where it sort of started here. And I wanted, I was really, I struggled with the term Western. Because I think when we say the West, what we often mean is the US. And I think because the US is so kind of culturally so big, it is so dominant culturally. And once you factor in the US, and I mean Canada as well, you then get a little bit screwed because they have their own decolonial story, which is independence from the British rule. But that's not the story I'm trying to talk about because fundamentally that's not an independence story that I think is really independence because it's fundamentally just the extension of more European values in a space. And also the, the experience of living in Argentina, which is very much thinks of itself as a European society, actually. They do not, they didn't seem to me to, and of course I went with my own ideas of what Latin America perhaps should be like, but like you really engage with that society as a European. They often talk to you about their European heritage, oh, we're Italian, oh, we're, Spanish. So I think to try and get around that, I try to kind of just fix it as European and have a kind of cultural understanding of what European is. And then I wanted to make clear that Europe in itself is its own kind of weird anomaly because it's not its own continent. It is attached to Asia. It is a peninsula fundamentally. It is the only peninsula that leapt to the status of a continent. These things are important. They're significant to problematize Europe. You might be wondering how Kate is problematizing Europe. Her research examines the Enlightenment, a European intellectual movement of the 17th and 18th centuries, where ideas concerning religion, nature, and rationality instigated revolutionary developments in the arts, philosophy, and politics. Central to Enlightenment thought were the use and celebration of reason, science, and secularism as a universal condition. I ask Kate what it means to critique the origins of the Enlightenment movement. You talk a lot about the Enlightenment and not the Enlightenment in terms of celebrating the figures such as Montesquieu or Diderot or Rousseau, but rather to think about the work of Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno and their text, Dialectic of the Enlightenment. Can you 
explain why you begin with the critique as opposed to the original Enlightenment text? Sometimes I think we need to talk also about like the real kind of ordinary things that and then end up, you know, structuring our academic research. And it was just one of my favorite classes. We did a class on social theories. This text was in it. It was one of the only classes I remember speaking up in. I think I would speak up now, but at that point I was not low. I was very low on confidence of speaking up in class. That wouldn't be something I would have done. But it was one of the few that I did because we talked about Horkheimer and Adorno. And fundamentally, they, you know, they were two German Jewish scholars, one left sort of very early, I think in like 1933, said, I can see how this is going left, and one left in 1939, and they both went and emigrated to the States eventually. And um, they said that, you know, the Holocaust, the World War II, the rise of fascism and the rise of Stalinism, these were not as we kind of often think of them now today, the, you know, the result of some crazy mad humans. They said, no, this is enlightenment thinking itself. This is our most revered. The thing that we look to, which is enlightenment thinking, as being the, the kind of greatest of achievement of, you know, especially European humanity, they said, no, this is exactly the product of this. This is where you end up, that killing human beings by the most efficient means possible is the final crux of capitalism. And I remember saying in that class like because someone said no these people they're nazis they were crazy crazy they were mad and i was like no that's what we've done to save the enlightenment to save this way of thinking we've had to sort of make out that this was just a work of a bunch of madmen and it wasn't it was the inevitable tendency of something that was super keen on industrialization and super keen on controlling the body and all of these parts that are enlightenment thinking and I just really liked this class. I really liked this text for what it said. I thought it was super insightful. And then I just was like, the fact that we then export it and continue export it to this day, which is why I don't think the colonial is over. We continue to export one of the most violent philosophies and modes of being to the rest of the world, I think is just, I just was really struck by the kind of violence of that and I wanted to use that to try and be like, explain how problematic it is that we do keep exporting it. It's very interesting that both Horkheimer and Adorno were ethnic religious minorities in the, um, Germany who were able to have this insight and critique uh, the rise of fascism uh, association with the Enlightenment period. Around the same time that they were writing, um, Ami Césaire wrote Discourses on Colonialism, also finding a relationship mm. between the colonialism and how that became father for fascism. Hannah Arendt on the origins of totalitarianism did a similar, uh, more extensive um, kind of analysis, German-Jewish, and Césaire being black Martinican uh, under French imperial project. And so there's a way in which post-World War II moment was in time for people who had been marginalized, black and Jewish, in yeah. the European metropole, to have this very sharp analysis uh, about uh, the kind of democratic or alleged democratic principles and universalism being at the core of these um, very violent acts. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's like a lot of unintended consequences. I fundamentally believe, of course, that we, people are intending good things. Democracy is a good thing. Universalism is so ingrained in our psychology that we almost cannot escape it, um, which is kind of wild. But 
um, they talk a lot about how when they do psychology tests like for a lot of people like other cultures especially in Asia they are much more able to hold two two conflicting ideas in their head at the same time and they're they're much more likely to see the context more than the specific thing and just like they're much more likely to reflect on themselves as beings in relation to other people which we don't do so much in the west we're super individualistic um and these things that we yeah this kind of democracy this that we think are just inherently good and i just think they're not and yeah the world war Two, i think because it was such obviously a big rupture it was the biggest um like violence act that europe i think has ever seen it gave people, I think, an opportunity to critique. But then I think what's interesting is we still, we somehow didn't take it on board or we still ended up saving enlightenment, I think, at the detriment to a lot of other things. You were raised in, in Britain and there's a way in which there are some turns in British history to celebrate the colonial path in a way that allies um, some of the violence that has been done or even to allied the items that were stolen from former British colonies as well to the point that people have been protesting uh, the, the holdings and wanting repatriation of objects back to the countries that they came from. Uh, when you were being instructed in history as a, a young person, uh, did you learn about these? No, okay. no. no. Uh, the colonialism, the empire is not on our history books. Mm -hmm. uh, it certainly wasn't on mine. My history books consisted of a lot of World War II, repeatedly from the age of about eight, which I think is far too young. I came home and I had a lot of uh, nightmares. Um, but yeah, we did that. We did slave trade. I, to say that we did the slave trade, it was the single most horrific, probably, experience of my life, learning about the slave trade in a very white school, in a very white town, um, by a teacher that thought it was appropriate to make his own slave trade board game where you won by getting the most slaves across the Atlantic. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> like, shaking her head at me, like, no. Yeah, um, it was it was bad. And... Uh, and we watched Roots, the film, in class. It was wild. Like, I honestly don't know what was happening. But um, no, nothing. It happens still today. It's funny because I was in a conference last April in Manchester and this group of people came in and they said, we're trying to deal with these schools which are teaching race really badly to these kids. And they still talk about, like, the economic benefits of slavery or how slavery, you know, how slavery civilized people. Or, like, And it's just... You just don't get a good history in what, like I, it took me until I was, yeah, 26 and living in Indian to really know about partition, to really know that the British had invited a man who'd never been to India in his life to divide the country to, into separate states of Pakistan and India. And I really didn't know until I lived in India, until I was in a classroom, until I saw how strongly Indians feel about it, how strongly they felt like it was a huge loss on their part of a nation um and of course it's super like right now delhi is going up in flames at the moment with a lot of police brutality against muslim students and this is all related to british imperialism and of course we should have been able to move past it but the british divide and rule did a very long-lasting damage
What you're pointing to is quite interesting, which is that even in circumstances in which you're taught one kind of history that either ignores the gravity of colonial violence or perhaps misrepresents some of the traumas of slavery, that by the mere act of traveling uh, to former colonies where people are living and breathing the traces of that those legacies that you can do the work in real time to really understand how colonialism continues and that it, there might not necessarily be a post per se or post-colonialism. What I want to ask you about is the extent to which people who resisted colonialism were able to create their own language to do so vis-a-vis uh, -vis decolonial ideology or uh, specifically vis-a-vis -vis liberation. So you cited at one point Negugui wa Tiongos, uh, Decolonizing the Mind, Ashis Nandi's The Intimate Enemy, and uh, Francois Noe Black's Skin White Mask. What role do you think this uh, literature as well as the kind of transnationalism and international social movements um, in the Global South has had in reformulating and reshaping not just intellectual thought and political theory, but a language and a space for resistance. On one side, I'm very pe pessimistic. I think it's too late almost. Like The world has become like a kind of empire, and it's become an empire of very rationalistic Western ideas, and I think it's utterly depressing in a way because I think the issues that we're being faced with today, which is like climate change, military violence, all these things, uh, maybe artificial technology, all this, all the solutions to these things already existed. People keep going, oh, we have to find solutions. I'm like, no, if you were like a tribal person, you weren't there forcing people to like burn loads of resources to get, like these solutions already existed. There were a lot of people that were li living with relative ease and happiness. And of, and of course some violence as well, but nothing to the scale that we live under now. Or like the, a lot of Europe has seen in the last, in the last past century. I think this decolonizing your mind is so difficult because you still have to be present in societies, whether they were societies that colonized someone or you were, you know, whether you were the colonizer or the colonized, you have to exist in those, these societies. And uh, it's very difficult, I think, to kind of escape the idea that there's a kind of superiority about the West. But I think it's interesting because we are still we are still fighting to make spaces and these are certainly spaces I find myself in a lot in Berlin and I fought very hard to be in these you know to kind of get myself to a space where I can be surrounded by these people and that makes my life easier and that's why I think it's so important to bring people in and we and we have our we have our spaces and we can rest a bit. I've started being more concerned about the pleasure of people who are struggling much more in spaces that are super colonial, super, you know, violent and whatever, as a lot of these spaces in the West are, I think, for bodies like ours. Here, Kate shares a bit of her comedy and how Audre Lorde, the black lesbian feminist, has helped her through the process. I think I'm used to being the odd one out, which is maybe why I'm quite comfortable in Berlin. I don't know about any of you, but I get stared at a lot when I'm on the U-Bahn, which is fun, because then I get to play the game, are you a racist or do you want to sleep with me? <laughs> or both. <laughs> like I kind of go home, but first go to my home. <laughs> yeah, I've dated a lot of white men, so I can say that sleeping with a black person doesn't necessarily make you not a racist. So you can't say that to white men, because they're very sensitive. <laughs> 
The other thing I thought I'd do while I was home was have sex again for the first time in a very, very long time. I actually hadn't said sex since July. And I was like, no, you know what? I'm in the mood. I want to have sex. My vagina is open for business again. And who should I invite to the soft opening? <laughs> That's a vagina joke. Uh, <laughs> um, woo, yeah. Um, so yeah, so I picked a guy. I was at this kind of party and I picked a guy basically because he was tall. Uh, I don't know what it is about straight women and tall guys. It's like we look at them and think, oh, that'll be fun come the music festivals in the summer. Um, <laughs> when really it doesn't matter because everyone's kind of the same lying down. So I went home with that guy, and then I was reminded why I'd stopped sleeping with British guys. Because British guys kind of have sex like how Britain colonised the world. <laughs> Aggressively, with no consideration for anyone else's feelings. <laughs> and afterwards he said, I'm sorry. I was like, bitch, you knew? Well, I don't think India feels like I'm sorry cuts over 200 years of colonial rule, and neither do I. The comedy I, I do for a, a number of reasons, but like part of what I think it is is like Audrey Lord has that like quote that's like, you know, remember that like our existence is political because we were never meant to survive. And I think sometimes you can really feel like that, like you can't, you're too tired to fight all the time. Because it does feel like a constant work to have to fight these narratives. And I just love to laugh. I love to laugh. I enjoy being happy and I enjoy funniness. And I wanted to see what you can do with comedy because the person that really changed it for me was Hannah Gadsby's Nanette. And she talks about white men and she talks about what it's like to be a lesbian and the comedy. And, it, and she broke the kind of format in a way that was so effective. And I was like, saw that and I remember thinking, oh, this is super interesting what you can do with comedy. And I try to, I make, you know, I have this Women of Colour showcase now that we've run a couple of times in Berlin. And we fill the space often with women and a lot of, and everyone's welcome, of course, like they're not exclusive spaces, but like, oh, you know, often with women and women of colour who, and I think a lot with people that wouldn't traditionally go to comedy shows because some, you can sit through a lot of comedy and I have to sit through a lot of comedy as someone who's an active member of the Berlin scene, which deals with some very problematic jokes, a lot of very misogynistic jokes and racist jokes. And I wanted to make a space where that didn't happen and also to kind of turn it back on people. So I have a few jokes in my set that are directly about colonialism in a way of like, oh, you know, this is why I don't sleep with British guys anymore because they have sex, like how Britain colonized the world, this sort of thing that I kind of try and throw in a bit. At the same time, I just think being happy in a world which has been set up for you not even to survive, let alone be happy in, is sometimes a really big form of protest. And when we have these rooms, the women just look at you and they're laughing. And I've been in so many rooms where I'm doing comedy and the women are laughing and men are looking at me with like anger in their face because they made these jokes and I'm like, oh, white men. And this guy in the front row of my last comedy show, it's a women of color comedy show. I'm like, what do you expect? He was like, he was like, get, like his face is all scrunched up, but then he still laughs when I say other jokes and he can see like that toss up between like, oh, I'm annoyed by her, but I'm also gonna laugh. I just, there is something about women's laughter, I think that is incredibly powerful and especially black women, especially women of color. It's like, you know, you're coming at us with everything, but not only are we surviving, but we're actually happy too. Yeah, I think that's such an important point that joy and particularly black joy mm -hmm. can be uh, so powerful, so moving. It can build community. 
And it also contradicts a very prevalent stereotype in the North American context mm. of the a so-called angry black woman. Right. Which, um, right. of course, as a, com- a person who is a comedian and who can, can actually do comedy that points to sexism, racism, the his- legacies of colonialism, mm. that that takes a different pathway than older forms of comedy yeah. in a very male-dominated For sure. Field. Yeah, for sure. It was definitely, it's definitely a field that is still male-dominated and I'm always on the lookout for more women, especially women of colour, to come up in the Berlin comedy scene because that's how we will make our spaces and win, you know, and do the thing. And it was, it was really nice being in India and doing comedy there because I was often the only woman. I I think I saw one other woman in my whole time doing uh, these open mics there and then everyone else was doing it in Hindi and I was doing it in English and then it was the juxtaposition of a brown body that is, you know, very similar shade to them but then speaking in English and then also not, they couldn't, they can't place me. Indians find it very difficult to work out quite what I am. Um, I think oftentimes I think I'm a mixture of Indian and African um and i think yeah and it was interesting to do comedy there and i think i was in india when i doing a comedy night and all my friends from my university there came to watch me which was really nice and i often make these jokes about white people love to steal and like it's just yeah and i was like they love to steal babies they love to they just they like to steal stuff and it's just very funny to me to have these things you can kind of throw in that people can't really refute because they know is true and then they can still get a laugh out of it. I wanted to turn to the end of your thesis where you talk about the enlightenment of fatalism and you say, quote, the world is not ending, but the future will be understood in ways that we are not capable of fathoming. Mm. These ways may not be new. They may be the resurgence of other ideas previously hidden. The beauty of recognizing that there is no single reality is to know that the solution for our existing crises likely already exists perhaps just among those that do not have the loudest voices or the biggest platforms, end quote. So given that, and perhaps the potential of the Enlightenment's fatalism, what do you think would be a kind of radical future that gives space for the humanity of folks, people who are from the global South, the humanity of of black and indigenous people, the humanity of women who have often been erased, and how does your work help to advance that? I think that's the thing that even being sort of so optimistic in so many ways about the present reality, I think I'm not very optimistic about the future. And I I have, of course, I would love to witness the kind of Wakanda vision of Black Panther. And I wish that was the reality that's coming. And, and maybe it is because every, and often generations think everything is over, but it's a weird disjuncture of like living in our generation and our present and how much we're going to see and then the future and what this is going to be and empires do fall but people survive them and I I fundamentally and in a way I'm optimistic about this because I'm sick of this empire I really believe this empire is crumbling I really believe that the empire that has been western hegemony for the last 300 400 years is crumbling and is dying um and just because there are similar things to the Roman, how the Roman Empire crumbled to how this one is, which is like obsession with food and problems around sex. And I just think we're living in a, and obviously there's the climate issue. And I, and so I try not to get too upset about the climate one. And it's not really been my 
kind of forte, but like the climate one, because I just think, oh, you know, I kind of feel like, okay, we all die in big tidal waves, blah, blah, blah. But there will always be people in the rainforest and there will always be people running the tribes, like, you know, running the plains in Africa, the tribes running the plains. And there will always, if, you know, the aboriginals in Australia have been able to survive in these climates which people thought were unlivable. And there are people on, you know, in the mountains and there are, there are groups of tribes in the Pacific that literally fish underwater and have been doing so for, I don't know how many, hundreds of years or potentially thousands. I, you know, people have been adapting. And just because we, in this very modern way of living, just because we are not adaptable, because we made it so we aren't adaptable, doesn't mean that there aren't humans that aren't gonna survive this. And they're gonna survive it and they'll do it in different ways. There's people in mountains, you know, regions that have better lung capacity and so on. And I just feel like, it's okay, like the way that we've been living, this is okay for this to go. And we can have a nice time while we're heading out the door. That's fine for me. <laughs> and then someone else can, you know, give it a go and we can see what other ways there are of living in, I don't know, the next hundred or so, couple of hundred years. But it might not happen, I don't know. I go back and forth with how optimistic I am about this. Thank you so much, Kate, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Laughter can be a tool of resistance, and it can do the work of providing joy to those who have felt otherwise. As Audre Lorde remarked in her essay, The Uses of Anger, quote, I have suckled the wolf lip of anger and have used it for illumination, laughter, protection, fire in places where there was no light, no food, no sisters, no quarter. We are not goddesses or matriarchs or edifices of divine forgiveness. We are not the fiery fingers of judgment or instruments of flagellation. We are women forced back always upon our women's power. You're listening to Decolonization in Action podcasts, and this episode was hosted by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, Germany. If you want to find out more about the podcast, please visit our website, www.decolonizationinaction.com. If you like what you hear, rate, comment, and share our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also follow us on Twitter at Deck in Action. We want to continue to express our gratitude for the activists, artists, and scholars who continue to support our podcast. Thank you for joining us.